Hello, and welcome to the Alchemy of Art podcast with your host, Addie Hirschton. Join us as we share folk tales and true stories about artists and the creative process. Our quote of the day is by Francis Bacon. He said, The job of the artist is always to deepen the mystery. Hello, everyone. My name is Addie Hirschton. I'm a contemporary impressionist painter, art instructor, author, and public speaker. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories about art and the creative process to inspire you uh, and in turn inspire myself, right? And to help you move forward. On the show, I interview artists from a wide variety of mediums so that we can learn from each other's processes and philosophy. Today's podcast features an interview with the clay and fiber artist Kara Machagemba and a personal story about art and jealousy. So announcements. Um, I recently started doing a series of paintings that are depicting parents holding their children and a lot of them are infants they're holding little bitty babies and i put a call out to people saying hey if you have photos that could be inspiration for one of these paintings you know please send them my way and maybe your um your photos will be incorporated into this body of work so if you're interested go to my website uh, as your fine art.com and and then send me an email through there and I'd love to have more inspiring photos to work with. Um, Got a lot of workshops and things coming up. Victorian flower painting. It's going to be a fun one. The secret language of symbols. This is going to be another good one. Uh, Four day plein air workshop here in Indianapolis. So a lot going on. I welcome you to sign up for my newsletter and With that, not only will you see what updates I've got going on, but you'll also get the podcast, The Alchemy of Art, new releases sent straight to your inbox. So I'd love to hear from you guys in the future. And now, without further ado, here is my interview with Kara Machigemba. Kara Machigemba is a clay and fiber artist who holds an MFA in fine art from California State University, Long Beach. She currently works for Amico, the American art clay company, where she specializes in marketing, making sample pieces for advertising, and producing how-to videos for clay artists. Not only does she create dynamic clay sculptors, often depicting people in a rather surreal, symbolic fashion, that I love, can you tell? Um, But she also constantly knits She's one of those constant knitters that just brings her work everywhere she goes. You can find out more about Kara's work at karamockblogspot.com. So that's C-A-R-A-M-O-X dot blogspot.com. Welcome, Kara. Hi, Addie. Thank you for having me here today. Oh, I am so pleased as punch that you are with me. Um, So what's the story of how you became an artiste? Well, 
Um, I was one of those kids who was always, always drawing, always painting, and always drawing constantly everywhere. But uh, I didn't really think about it as anything special until I was about 15. Um, my father took me to Europe and we did uh, France and uh, a little bit of Switzerland and Italy. And he took me to places like the Louvre and the Vatican Museums and the Uffizi. And um, while we were in Florence, there was a special exhibition of Leon Leonardo da Vinci's uh, horses his drawings from his notebooks. And uh, it was a, just a, a spectacular show. And uh, I think that was the moment when I, I decided that this was what I wanted to do, was looking at those drawings. Uh, I wanted to make things like that. I wanted to be able to draw that way, and I wanted to create things the way that he did. And that was that was the sort of moment at which I decided that was where I wanted to be. I mean, it, there was a long time where I thought that I would be a painter. And strangely, I discovered in college that uh, although I draw pretty well, I don't paint particularly well. <laughs> and... Um, I liked drawing more than I liked painting, so I uh, I really loved the two D, but I I didn't um, I didn't stick with it. And then I I liked making um, sculptural work, and I was having a hard time figuring out how to combine my love of drawing and two dimensional artwork with my love of making a three dimensional form. And uh, we had a visiting artist named Patty Warashina uh, at my university, and she's a ceramic artist, and her work combines painting with uh, ceramics in a three-dimensional form. And I looked at what she was doing, and I went, oh, I can do both painting and sculpture. And so that's how I ended up doing ceramics and continuing on in it. So my next question for you is what's drawing you to sculpture and knitting of course over those other mediums you know what it, I'm I'm guessing that it's the tactile quality that it's something alluring about the 3D can you articulate that I think that it somewhat is the tactile quality but I feel like a sculpture when you make a thing and when you interact with a, a thing rather than a two-dimensional painting or drawing, um, the way that you interact with that object as a viewer is different. A sculpture is in your space in a way that a painting or a photo is not. And there was a, there was a, a reality to it that really appealed to me. So that's the best explanation I can give. I just really enjoyed, you know, making a thing. Hmm. And I, something about how you just said, it's, how did you phrase it? 
it's in your space. And I thought, it's in your face. <laughs> Just kind of, which I think um, there, there's something about your personality, which, you, you know, you're very outspoken and um, you don't put up with crap and you 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 tell it like it is and and I'm wondering if that's part of it is the sculpture is is breaking through and it's reaching out to you it's in your face is that is that that could be part of it um I do think that sculpture has the capacity to be very confrontational I have been told that I'm rather intense uh In a good way, the best way, Gary. <laughs> I don't think that I've ever been told that I don't speak my mind. Never have had that be an issue. So are there any pieces of artwork that you've created that were really speaking your mind, that were um, intentionally, there was a message for the viewer that would reflect that? Yes, yes. There there have been quite a few. Um one of my favorite pieces from when I is from when I uh, lived in California and it's a relatively small piece. It's only about 8 or 9 inches tall. Okay. Um and it it's I, I it was part of a series that I thought of as the dress forms because the the figures were very very minimal but they definitely had a shape like a dress. Okay. And then the the this particular piece um, had an animal head with upright ears and huge eyes looking straight at the viewer. To to my perspective, it always was like staring, uh, and little tiny arms. But the head was was disproportionately large, and it was an animal head with these upright ears. And I haven't really decided what kind of animal it was, but the title of the piece was Bitch. Okay. And uh, a lot of people thought that that was really an odd title for it, but I thought, well, it's like kind of dog-like. And and even though it's small and delicate and kind of doll-like, it has this really aggressive look on its face. And it it's... Um, uh, and its stance, the way that the... the the shoulders are back, and uh, the position of the figure really seems to be a you know take no shit from anybody kind of carriage kind of uh, body language. Mm. So that that I think works pretty well. I'm not a I'm not a tall person. I'm not short. I'm just sort of average sized, but, um, uh, I know that some people have not taken me very seriously because they're just like, well, it's a little, it's a little woman. What is, what's the deal? There's no, there's no challenge there. Well, maybe, maybe not. So does that mean that the bitch sculpture is a self portrait care? <laughs> I think of all of my sculptures as being self-portraits. Okay. They all mm-hmm. are me in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I don't really uh I have done some portraits specifically of other people, but I think that even those really they're all me. Interesting. Interesting. What advice would you give to your younger artist self? 
maybe not to be in such a rush to kind of find a voice. I think that um, letting the muse speak to you when it's ready, uh, there's a lot to be said for that. Mm. And that's a tough one. Uh, I think perhaps to be more patient with myself and not be as hard on myself as I was as a younger artist. I think that's the the main thing. I wish that I'd been a little less impatient and uh, had a, I had a real need to prove myself. And as I look back, I think the only person I needed to prove myself to was myself. Mm. Mm. Well, right on. Um, hmm. So I have just finished writing a book. Kara, I don't know if I've even told you about this, but it's a guide to painting. And the the impetus behind it, the push behind it, is helping the reader develop their own style. And one of the tricks to this is, though, is is just creating and just making a bunch of things. And it's rather like your handwriting, your style and your voice, as you phrased it. It's going to come out anyway if you just keep going and keep going. And suddenly you look down and, you know, you've got a handwriting. So my question for you is, does, is that just going to naturally happen with with artists um and is that part of what you're saying to just be patient and just let that occur yes i mean you can i think that the most important part of being an artist is making Mm -hmm. and the more you make like you say like handwriting the more you make the better you will get and Mm -hmm. the more ideas you will have just just through the act of doing again and again. I guess what I'm trying to say is is that I didn't need to make myself the next Leonardo da Vinci. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I needed to make myself the best Kara Mochigemba that Kara Mochigemba could be. Right. And that that was what I needed to do. Instead of trying to be someone else. Um, so if you use the, the handwriting analogy, uh, instead of trying to make my handwriting imitate another artist or follow another artist's track, just practicing handwriting and being as consistent as I could in that, that it would be easier. I think one of the things one of my professors suggested that you should make the artwork you want to see. Sometimes when I was younger, I was trying hard to make the artwork that I thought others wanted to see. Mm. And it can be really hard to know that this is what you want to be making and still be open to constructive criticism but be true to your own vision and be true to what you want to make. When you make art, 
you're kind of remaking the world in your own image. And so you really have to be true to that image and not, not worry so much about how other people think that it should be. Mm. They can make their own art. <laughs> right. Right. Powerful stuff. What's the main message you were trying to convey with your work? Um, you know, after, after finishing graduate school, I try to not articulate it too much. Mm -hmm. The kind of themes that I like to put into my work uh, mostly revolve around, you know, big stuff like sex and death and renewal and growth, but, but on, a, on a very personal level. I like to bring in elements of age. I really love to take things that are common or, or cheap even and kind of give them a new life that suggests some kind of history and mystery. But I, I don't think that I have a, I don't have an elevator speech for my artwork. I don't have a, a concise way of, of wrapping it up. I just put all the things that I enjoy into the things I make. And sometimes it's different and that's how it works out. I'm not very good at, at uh, narrowing stuff down. <laughs> Few artists are. <laughs> um, last question. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite art book or story? It could be a personal story that happened to you, really anything. I, I went to a film festival that was all art-related films, and they didn't really give a whole lot of background. And I, I accidentally uh, sat through a, a, a film that I thought was shockingly boring, and it was um, Willem de Kooning mm -hmm. in his studio oh. painting. And... Uh, he his studio was huge and he would sit in this chair and look at the painting from across the studio and then and then he would get up and he'd pick up his brush and he'd walk over to the painting and he would just go and put one <laughs> one brush stroke on the painting okay and then he'd walk back and sit down and of course his paintings are really dynamic i mean they look like he he attacks the painting yeah but apparently what had happened, and, and wow. this was a more, it got more interesting after I saw the film, I found out that um, a film crew came to his studio and they wanted to, to film him working on his paintings. Um, and I guess this was around the time of Jackson Pollock and all of the, the action painting. And so he thought that they really wanted something like a Jackson Pollock-esque production. So he he does all of this painting where he's really attacking the painting and it's lots of fast brush strokes and aggressive and and they thought this is great. Well, they they came back the next day to finish up the filming and he had scraped the painting down to the canvas. And the the crew is like what in the world was that for? And he said, "Well, that's not how I really paint." And they said, "Well, Show us how you really paint. We, that's what we want to see. We want to see how you really paint. Wow. And that's how they ended up with the film where he just sits in his chair 
<laughs> and then periodically goes over and just puts one brush stroke on the painting. And I think that what that told me, you know, there's that saying, uh, as, as boring as watching paint dry. And that, uh, you know, there are artists for whom the production of artwork is the exciting part mm. or is part of the, the, the art itself. But for so many of us, it's not. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be exciting to watch. It's really about what you end up with at the end and not about how you put the paint on the canvas or how you put the clay on your piece. It just, it doesn't have to be about those, those tricks. It really is about just making and uh, what do you end up with? Right. Right. Interesting. Because so, when you, when you said that, I thought, oh, I know what my favorite part is. My favorite part is right before it's about to happen. And I have all the planning going on in my head and strategizing and that's where the meat of it is for me. And this really came out most uh, intensely when I would do quilting back in the day. So I would select the fabric and I'd pick out the design and I'm figuring out where each color is going to be and how it's going to end up. And then, then I had to do the drudgery of cutting it, sewing it together, ironing, and all these things you have to do to make a quilt. And oh, the worst was the very end when you have to actually quilt it all and sandwich it together. So, that, so it was funny to me that you said, oh, it's that end result that now we have something uh, concrete that's been produced. So I, I don't know. It's just funny because my mind went complete opposite. The other end of it. <laughs> yeah. you know, for me, for me, the best part is when I take something out of the kiln. Oh. Uh, and and I know that this is this is it. It's it's what it's gonna be, and that's my favorite part. And sometimes when I take something out of the kiln, boy, it's not what I wanted. Not a happy surprise. Not always. <laughs> There there have been some shockingly, shockingly unhappy surprises, like when I I really thought that I I um had a great idea for a glaze and uh in in my early days right out of graduate school and uh, it was a very bad glaze. The glaze shivered, which means it came off of the sculpture. Oh. But oh except it <laughs> It kept doing it for days. So it was like shedding glaze constantly. Whoa. <laughs> and I had to throw that out. <laughs> wow. So sometimes, sometimes I've had some really bad experiments, but I'm always open to experimenting and seeing what happens. Lovely. Lovely. Well, Kara, thanks so much for coming and chatting with me today. Thanks again for having me. So uh, today's story is a personal story that happened to me. Once when I was in college, I was attending a nature crafts workshop. Okay. I was instructed to go forage in the woods for materials to create a basket. So I went into the woods and sort of gathering a pile of sticks, I came back to camp to work alongside the other students. 
Now, one of the other students had found an excellent vine to work with. It was pliable, it would bend to create elegant curves as she wove her piece, and I was so jealous because my sticks were really brittle, and as I tried to bend them, they would break, and I was having a lot of trouble creating this basket. A few minutes later, however, our instructor came over to inspect her work, and he was shocked to see that what this other student uh, was using her vine was poison ivy. <laughs> so quickly they left to go treat her hands and get them washed up and, and all of that. I was suddenly very happy to have my brittle sticks to work with. And so the, what does this story tell us? I think it's, it's about how the grass is always greener, but just because somebody else has something, it doesn't mean that that's what's going to be right for you or even right for them. <laughs> but I think about our, our conversation with Kara and how she was talking about not wanting to take on other people's voices, but to find her own. And there's a lesson here about not looking over the shoulder of somebody else and just wishing you had what they had, but being happy and content and seeing the bright side of what you've got. <laughs> um, another small example of this, I had always used to be very envious of people who'd have you know, fabulous art supplies, like a really nice studio with a big, huge easel. Um, but I'll tell you, I mean, it was only a couple years ago that I finally bought an easel and it's not even that great of one, but I just, I, I wanted to spend my art supply money on paint and canvases and I didn't want to spend, you know, $500 on a really nice easel. So I would just lay my paintings flat on the table and work, work flat. Um, so you know, it's, it's fine to admire things other people have, but don't let what they've got stop you from creating. Work with what you've got. If you don't have a big studio room, that's okay. Just set up a table in the corner of your living room and get to work and start creating and doing what you really want to do. So this story is not in my Alchemy of Art Stories for the Classroom book as most of the stories that I share at the end of the podcast are. This one is uh, incorporated into my new upcoming book that I think will be titled, not officially yet, but I think it's going to be titled The Alchemy of Painting. It's a guide to developing your style. So more on that in the future. It's just a little, little hint of what's to come. So this concludes our Alchemy of Art podcast for today. May these stories about art and the creative process inspire you. May you find your voice. You have been listening to the Alchemy of Art podcast. To find out more about Addie Hirshton and her work, go to azirfineart.com. That's A-Z-H-I-R-F-I-N-E-A-R-T dot com.